All right. Episode 14. Nice. So what are we doing first? Let's talk about EmberConf. Yeah. Two trainings. Two trainings. Yeah. We did two trainings this year. We did two last year. So we, we definitely knew what we were getting ourselves into. I don't know if we did. I no. The, short I think term we memory did. loss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's always great up till as three, two or three days before it. And you immediately regret this commitment. <laughs> <laughs> but then you do the training. It ends. And you're like, I'm so happy we did that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, the thing with the trainings, it feels like really, I feel like our, a job of a good trainer is to facilitate a discussion. Because when do you have 40 people in a room with such diverse experience working on small products, big products, small teams, big teams, people are testing different ways. It's, it's, you don't, you can't recreate that in any online environment, yeah. forum, Twitter. I mean, they get, they can get close, but it's not the same. I think, I think as you want people to get exposure to that, cause we could stand up and we could talk about how we write tests, but we're, we're a team of two. Right. So it's great getting feedback from other people that are, you know, on 40 person teams. Right. So yeah, def definitely. That's great. I also think you did a great job facilitating those sort of discussions. Like I think that, you know, fits with like your background and, and you running classes before. So. Right. Right. It's like, um, such a non-intuitive thing when you first, if you ever become an educator in that venue where you think you're the expert and your job is to teach what I know, but really again, it's to facilitate and driving the lesson through questions and also us knowing to focus on exercises. That, I mean, it's just the best. It's best. It's better for us, and it's way better for them. Yep. They love it, you know. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I what what I thought was fun was the feedback on the functional CSS course throughout the week of Emberconf. <laughs> it was just the same thing. I felt like I was in the Matrix, deja vu, over and over again. So it starts with I was super skeptical. I just signed up because you know I was, but I was, but I was super, super skeptical. Yep. I mean, you see functional CSS, and it's just a bunch of utility classes and of course, that, that was our experience. It's like when get we off were my lawn, this. right? Yeah. It's yeah. like these these little hipsters are ruining my web development experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're skeptical. They just sign up because one reason or another. And then, you know, the first few exercises are like, let's just get our feet wet and try it out. And people were still like, grumble, grumble. Like, why and, am I doing this? And then I feel like once we got like half an hour in, people were like, um, that's cool. We've been like designing, we've been like implementing mockups and I haven't written a line of CSS yet. Yeah. Well, that, that was something we talked about after the training. We did a three hour training on CSS and we didn't write a single line of CSS. Pretty awesome. Yeah. And, and this is a power functional CSS. Yeah, seriously. And so, yeah, all week people would just come up to me and say, you know, I basically can't wait to go home and try it. Or like, it's more like I was skeptical. And now I'm like, I don't think it's completely crazy. I'm super intrigued. I had a lot of fun and now I actually want to try it out. Yeah. Um, which is good because we don't, we didn't want to be dogmatic about it because like, as with any new thing, it's easy to jump on a bandwagon and only see the benefits and then go home and like yell at people for not doing their things the right way. Yeah. yeah. That's what everyone does when they're starting out, you know, when they're new, but it's good to have that, bring the maturity and say, okay, there's another tool in my tool belt. How does it fit in? And so folks got some experience using it and then they can see how it would fit in. You know, one thing everyone kept asking was like, was there, is there an upgrade path 
to using functional CSS, introducing functional CSS into a code base that doesn't yeah. use it. And like more specifically, I think one of the questions we got was, I have a, a bootstrap or foundation app. Yeah. How do I, you know, that has all these classes, all these global rules. Yeah. How do I get over to functional CSS? Yep. And so I, I think if we were going to do that training again, which I think we should because it was like a big hit. Yeah. Um, that would be a, a focus of like the last half hour. Yeah. Let's start. Let, yeah. Let's let's actually make a bootstrap app. Right. And let's get it ported over. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of starting with a blank canvas. Yeah. And I think basically the TLDR there is use Ember components to encapsulate the styles and treat it like an implementation detail. Yeah. I think encapsulate the styles. So so. I mean, the, the real thing here Bootstrap is, panel, let's say, but not allowing people to invoke a component with a class property. Right. So all the, all the component class is like all the, all the class logic for a component is in the component. Right. It's private, private, hidden from all callers. And that makes refactoring easy. Right. Cause you can, it's an implementation detail. Right. So once you get it all in there, you can just change the implementation and you can build the panel using the functional CSS classes which is nice because all the reasons we talked about, you get rid of, you just get rid of the CSS that you don't like. And now you're just using a, a small subset of functional CSS. Yeah. So I think it's hard. I think it's hard to, I think the first component where you, you encapsulate all the CSS is the hardest. Yeah. I think that's hard. But once you get, it's like writing a test. Yes. Your first test is always the hardest. Once you get a few tests in place that, you know, you can kind of see everything, how the world is, is coming together. So, yep. I had an interesting thought. I was working on a video this week and you know, we use functional CSS now and there's this thing where you're trying to explain something. We love functional CSS because it's, you have a direct access to the styling properties and you can just change things without having to abstract, but it does kind of dirty up your template. And, um, if you're trying to teach, let's say like a closure action and you look at a template with a bunch of classes, it can be distracting. Um, so I was, we were talking about like, you want to hide that, but you don't want to hide it by having to make an abstraction. So explain. So you have a template and you have all the markup there. Think about when you open a template and you're trying to understand it. There's this idea that I had that was basically, if I'm looking at a template to change the styling or understand how it looks, I want to understand the classes and the CSS. But a lot of times, we're teaching, let's say you're teaching Ember concurrency. Let's see, say you're teaching um, data down actions up. In those situations, the styling and the actual markup don't really matter. No, no, not at all. I want to use, I want styling in those examples because I want people to see it and get excited about it. And it's a real world thing. Yes. If you're ever working on an Ember app, it's a styled Ember app. So you're going to have some clutter there no matter how you're styling. Right. When I'm showing them the template, like especially with something like Ember concurrency, I want them to see like an action you know, it, like a button with an action. I want them to see an if statement, like if task is running. Exactly. And then like some alerts. But yeah, I don't want them to see a lot of, I don't want them to see a lot of class names. It's like implementation detail. It's like not relevant. Yep. So, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, but this is like a new idea that's just like the seed has been planted. And I feel like, so you want the classes there because it lets you just change the style so easily. That's why we love it. But at the same time, you want them hidden when you're not, concerned with the styling so so it, so it might what this might look like would be that this is actually a tooling problem and not an object-oriented design or programming design problem whereas 
a lot of times you would look at like a class, like an object in a system, and you would say, this is hard for me to understand, and it's because the code goes up and down levels of abstraction. And the answer there is to like abstract away the implementation details into like a private method or even another class, so that when I look at this thing, I can understand how it works at a high level. A lot of times in templates, like templates are used for both things. They're used for like control flow and like actions and data flow, but they're also used for like styling. It's almost like what I want is to be able to click on a div or like cursor over a div and then have like a styling pane that I can open up that's easily accessible, as easy to change as if I just had a class attribute. But when I'm just looking at a template to understand it, I don't see any of that stuff. Yeah, you're you're scaring me a little. Like I'm imagining like <laughs> front page where I just like go in and there's like color wheels. Yeah. But I get I get what you're saying. It's almost like you you have one template, but in reality you have two. You have the the logic data flow template, and then you have like the layout and styling template. And you're you're never you're rarely editing both at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Like usually my workflow is I have a static mockup, and I want to build that thing as fast as possible, and that's markup in CSS. Like layout. whether I'm doing classes, yeah, layout, exactly. And then I'm going to implement the behavior. And at that point, I really want to hide all that details. But like putting, an, you still want to put an action handler on an anchor tag. So I need to know there's an anchor tag there. But I don't care about the class. I literally train my eyes to ignore all that stuff, right? Yep. So I feel like there's something there. It is. It is a distraction. Yeah. Because when you're showing someone a template and it's they don't need to see this part of the template right now. Exactly. Yep. Cool. So yeah, maybe maybe there's something there where you know my first thought was like an atom plugin that can collapse class attribute on all elements in the template, and then once I mouse over, once I cur my cursor makes an active uh, div, then it just opens it, and I can go edit it as if it were always always ex expanded. Nice. I think that could be pretty cool. I think that's a great first step. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot easier to d digest than you know a style panel that pops right. open. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how iOS does it. Or can't you can't you use like isn't there like a storybook like thing for iOS where you design flows and it's graphical, but the elements themselves are like styled using a separate Yeah, I don't I I I think I've seen this. Yeah. I've never yeah. never used it. Might be worth checking out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that um that I set up for Embermap this week for our code base is usually when we're like we're working on Ember, we have um, when we're doing development, we have a Mirage scenario that kind of just represents all of our data. So we can like put the user in a subscribed state, see how they use the site. We can put the user in like a non-logged in state, see what it's like to use the site as a non-logged in user. But then when we go to like push the code, we usually like proxy. So we proxy to like our local backend, or we can proxy to production. Mm -hmm. Um, because when we proxy to production, we can see like, you know, we do ember serve dash dash proxy, you know, to our production backend. And we can see what the site looks like before we do a deployment. Right. Um, I think this is great. I, th I think that ember CLI, like letting you just swap out backends, like from Mirage to development to uh, production is, um, I think it's awesome. Yeah. One thing I set up for us was in our development environment, we now have a seed file that runs that will set up uh, basically a functioning version of Embermap. So it sets you up with a, a real subscription in, in Stripe's test environment. It sets you up with a real subscription, like a real credit card. I mean, it's not a real credit card. It's like a real test credit card. But um, it works in a black box. It treats the system as a black box and it works in yes, that way. Yes, it works. So you, you are actually making API calls to Stripe. 
it's your debt, it's your dev environment. So this is like the step after Mirage, I guess. But so you have your Rails server running too? You have your Rails yeah. server running and your Rails server gets seeded with just a bunch of enough fake data. It's high fidelity enough. But it's high fidelity. So we have like real series in there. You can go in, you can delete the series, you can create series. Nice. It looks like a real instance of Ember Map. Of Ember Map. And you can just press a button to reset it. So nice. you rerun the seed file. So you can cancel your subscription, press a button, get a whole new, a whole new environment. Nice. So this is like, I, I think most folks have this, yeah. uh, like Rails has this concept of seeding. Yeah. But one thing we did here, this is like, this is the, the thing I want to brag about. Yeah. Is when you push a branch of the Rails backend, you now get a whole instance running on Heroku with all this. So you get an actual instance with its own database, with its own subscriptions, with mm. its own content. Whereas before... Before we had like a staging server or we would just like use production. Right. So now you get, now you have a, a branch, you have a branch, you have a dedicated database for that branch, you have dedicated subscriptions, you have dedicated content. So you can just go bananas. You can like, go bananas. Like you can do stuff on your, your branch and I can do stuff on my branch and they won't interfere with each other. And they won't mess all. with production, obviously. And if you, if you need to, yeah, they won't mess with production. If you need to reset your data, you can reset your data. It won't reset my data. So it's like, it's basically we found a way to have like end staging environments. Yeah. So this is, this is like, this kind of gets a little mind bendy, but we also do the same thing with the front end. When you push in that, the Ember side of the code, you get your own instance of the Ember front end. Okay. Because we run our front end on a separate Heroku. It's a separate Heroku. App. Yeah. It's a, yeah, exactly. You get your own instance of the front end running and you can point that front end at any back end you want. So you can do a, a, a branch pull request deployment, point it at production, see how it works mm -hmm. with production data. So like right before you hit merge, you know exactly what this thing is going to look like. Have we ever had that before? Yes. So we did have that before, but we could only have it pointing at production. Right. So anytime we opened a PR, you would see, anytime we opened an Ember PR, you could see- Your new Ember code your against new Ember code our production, production. Back, back end. But what if you like change something with a subscription yeah. flow? Like how do you actually test that? Right. Now you're like running against this, this production environment. So you're actually not gonna use it. You're just gonna like kind of go halfway through it. Be like, it looks good. You're gonna cancel your biggest team yeah. or whatever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're not gonna go cancel everyone's subscription. <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> and right. see what happens. <laughs> But so, now you can. Now you can. Because you have a, your own isolated data environment. Yeah. So you do you do a branch, you get a front end, you get a back end. You, they, those two are pointed at each other, but then you can point them off at different other branches as well. That's awesome. So we, we basically have end staging environments for the front end and the back end, and then you can point them any which way. That's really awesome. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're back to, well, beyond really, but at least matching what we had before when we were doing the lighting deploys because they give us the easy smoke tests um, in production um, where you're, you're seeing it against the production database and it's easy. But now basically we, since we can, we're like forking both apps more or less, yep. we have any combination. So, yep. and yeah, this came, you were working on some su subscription stuff. I was working stuff. on some subscription so, stuff. And I think it's really, I think it's, it's every kind of like every developer knows that like you have your production environment, you have your dev environment, you usually have a staging environment. Right. The staging environment starts out pretty close to production yeah and then your staging environment kind of turns into like its own staging environment yeah. like you have like users in staging that yeah. you know are there yeah yeah so like oh every time i test something on staging i'm gonna go user use user four five six right and that but that 
Like that, that diverges from right. production because you don't have user four, five, six in production. Like staging tends to take on a life of its own. So, so I, I think the two, like the, the point I want to make here is that you want a quick way to spin up staging environments. You want them to look just like production. They don't have to be like a copy of production, but yeah. you want them to look, they should look, they should feel like a, a version of Ember map. Shouldn't right. be just like test video one, test video right, two. Right, right, right. Should be real videos. Um, and then you want to make it, you want to make it easy. You want to yeah. make it really easy. Like any developer, if, if we hire a developer to work on Ember map, they, they would have all this. Yeah. They don't have to like configure anything. They would just automatically get all this. And I yeah. think that's really important. That's great. Yeah. The seed file. Yeah. Having that easily work in a staging like environment. That's great. I mean, it's, you run in the same thing where you're developing locally, let's say, and let's say you were doing something like, especially something like, um, like a budgeting software where it's not easy, you know, being, um, a user with 10 records versus 10,000 records, you want to be able to swap between those environments. Yes. You know? Yep. And um, it's it, so many times I've worked on teams, it's it's like you were saying, the staging environment becomes one version of the world because it's, it's so hard to set things up that you only ever develop in that state. And you, it's really hard to ever say, what does my app look like for a new user? How, how, this is a great question. If you were to go reset your staging environment today, would you have to like go on a Slack and be like, Hey everyone, I'm about to reset staging. Is that okay? Right. Cause that's, that's a symptom of this not having a quick setup for yes. test data. That's great. Not test data, like dev data. Staging it's just like data. a, it's, it's an important scenario for your app. Yep. Like, um, I'm trying to think of another app that's a really good use case, but yeah, you, you don't want, um, just one seed file that you only ever have access to. Like you want multiple seeds and you want easy ways to switch between them. Yep, exactly. That's really cool. Yes, and it's great. I mean, it's great having it in Mirage, having it in Rails. It's right. just, I feel like our- You get to our move up and down work, yes. the yep. layers as you need them. Yep. Um, like you need a local fast feedback cycle, your Mirage, then you need a little bit more. You want some more confidence. Once you're done, you can go down there. Um, and this is again working because we have two Heroku apps. Yeah, I mean, even but if you yes. but if so, you didn't, so I think I think today, like Ember in 2018, I think you should have a separate deployment process for your front end. I don't, I don't really. I'm sure folks can come up with reasons why it's coupled to some other app, but yeah. I think you want your your own separate deployment. And I think Ember makes that easy with like Ember CLI deploy. Yeah, and you would still classify what we used to do as a separate deployment, where even yes. though the the build was going to the back end, it was still a separate deployment. Yeah, had the ability to roll it yeah, back so, independently. And so the Lightning deploy, right? I I would yes, absolutely view that as a separate deployment. Yep. Yes, but um, but this isolation that we have now, where the two are completely isolated. Um, is that what is enabling this? Yeah. So the two being completely isolated means you can deploy backends, deploy front ends, and then take point. your take your your staging front ends and point them at staging backends. Yeah. And right. and you could you could imagine we could have like we we don't do this. I don't really see us ever doing this, but we could have like five staging two staging backends. One's like here's a staging backend with a ton of users. Right. Here's a staging backend with no users. Right. But we would just, we would set that up in a seed file right. and do like a PR deploy. Right, right. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, being able to run through subscription flows, you know, I think that's the next step for us, right? I think we want to 
like one that, of the things that, that's, that's what's causing all this yes. right so one of the things that's easy to get away when you start adding all these new pages and screens and stuff is there's flows that you haven't accounted for so we want to kind of enumerate all of them and make sure the site works for every every permutation through that flow and now when we have that list we can just do that yep. easily yes. i mean you can always do it but we can do it easily reset the data and go through it so that's really cool yeah exactly nice that's awesome yeah i'm excited fun. to play with that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So one, yeah. one of the things that came up in, the, um, in our trainings was you said you were talking about mirage modeling and factories and, and, and data modeling. Mm -hmm. And you said, how do we make the, uh, how do we make the impossible impossible? Mm -hmm. um, so do you want to just, do you want to just expand on that? Cause I really like this. This yeah. is one of my favorite, favorite takeaways. Cool. Yeah. That was the mirage training. I think I saw it in a tweet. Um, and, and um, but I think I've also heard it before a long time ago when I was first learning coding and it was, it was some class I took. The idea was we were talking about data modeling and how to, we were learning about basically database design, just funny for a class of front-end developers. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's the, such as the state of things these yeah. days. I think it's good. And we were using like polymorphic relationships and has many's and belongs to's and um, <clears throat> What was the example? I'm trying to think of the actual example. I think when we were talking about this, you had given an example of like you have um, Boolean state versus Boolean string, state, right? Yeah. So the idea was um, there's situations where it's easy to do your data modeling, whether it's a database or just a component state, let's say an Ember app. And the way you, uh, the data structure you choose can lead you to a spot where you get into an impossible situation. And what I mean by that is something that is actually happening in the code but can't be doesn't reflect reality so so like you would have a flag that's like is logged in is true and then you would have a, a, a property that's like user id is null yeah it's like that's an in, that's impossible yes and the other example is like a promise has like let's say is pending and is settled and so it has two attributes and as pending can be true or false, and as settled can be true or false. So you're thinking like, how should I do this? And I'm like, oh yeah, it can be as pending, and it can also be as settled, um, um, or or let's say is errored, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that those two booleans exist independently, there's no constraints in the way you've chosen that data structure to prevent a situation where you have is pending is true, and uh, is error is also true, or or is is settled is also true. And so it's impossible. So you want to you want to come up with a data structure that makes that impossible situation impossible to represent to represent in the code. And so instead, what the answer there is that really this is a state machine, and a promise can be either uh, in flight or settled or error or success. Let's say let's just say that that is the data model you're going for. And so the better way to represent that is. Um, with using like let's say a string for the current state um something like that settled state or or whatever and then if you, if you wanted like a boolean for is pending what you would like derive it based off the string right so that way if you had like is pending is a boolean that says state equals um pending is settled is state equals um settled that way those booleans can never actually uh conflict with the reality of, of the world and so yeah we were talking about that with, with database design because we were saying um that's what it was. We had a polymorphic relationship between comments and you can comment on either a post or a video. And um, the 
post had a comment ID and the video had a comment ID and they could both point to the same comment. The comment had no pointer back to them. And we were introducing the notion of polymorphic relationships because you want that thing to be able to point back to things of different multiple types, which is a good use case for polymorphism. I think I think you want the keys on a comment. Right. So a comment has That's a video weird. ID yes. and a post ID. But then what happens if it has both a video ID and a post ID? Like is, That's does, not actually a possible uh, uh, state of your program. You you would never have a comment, the that, same comment, nice video dude, and it points <laughs> to both a post and a video. But the fact that your database lets you do this is, is a problem. Is a problem, right. It's just you're asking for errors, basically. So you want to make the impossible impossible. So for this situation, what what is it? How do you make the comment? How do you make the comment that has a video ID and a com a post ID? How do you make that impossible? Right. So the way you do that is you get rid of those columns. Instead, you have a commentable ID, which would point to either video one or post two. And then this thing is, well, now, like, if I just have a commentable ID that's one, how do I know if it's a video or a post? So we need one more field that's commentable type. And that would be either video, a string video or a string post. And now those two things form a composite key that points to either a record. And if I were to switch a comment from pointing to post one to video two, that thing's going to change. There's only one spot for that data to exist. It can never simultaneously point to both. And so you've eliminated that whole error state from ever potentially occurring. Nice. So pretty cool lesson. Yeah. And it applies like everywhere. I think it's great. I think when we, when we talk about how we're going to set stuff up, I think that's always like back of the head question, just, you know, smoke test this. Right. Exactly. Can I ever have my database into in an inconsistent state? You know, we talk about this with also like, um, and it can be hard because sometimes you actually can't get your data structure to a point where it eliminates all possible bugs. Um, which is where sometimes you move that logic higher level. So let's say you have like a Trello card list and you need to sort them and Trello cards have like a position. Um, is there a database that says, uh, is there a database column type in your database um, software that says position for these two things can never be the same? Maybe not. Maybe you can't impose that constraint at the database level where you have two cards that are position one. Whereas in your app, that doesn't make any sense. That should never be allowed. And so, but, but as you can imagine, like there's more constraints mm -hmm. at higher levels, situations in your app that can't be allowed and you can't always guarantee them at the database level. So if you can't guarantee them at the database level, you want to try to do it at the data structure level in your app code. If you can't do that, you need higher level things like, you know, object oriented design to impose certain constraints. So is the, is the idea here to always be thinking about this, but then always be aware of where, what, what part of the system is responsible for managing this? I think you want to reach for the data structure first as the, your strongest ammunition against introducing error-prone states into your software. And um, just like if we could avoid a bunch of potential bugs by using a string to represent state instead of three Booleans, that's what you want to do first. Okay. But then maybe you have additional layers that says, actually, there's only sometimes with state machines, especially is another good example, because um, a lot of times with state machines, there's only certain valid ways to transition from one to the next. So just the fact that we have four states for a promise and mm -hmm. a string, that's actually not enough. That's not enough constraints because really it's never possible to go from like success directly to error. Maybe it's only possible to go for, from success to uh, pending and then from pending to either error or whatever, yeah. right? So, so, and those constraints really couldn't be imposed on the data level, at least not in JavaScript. This is a great, I'm thinking of Rails code and this is a great, great example is that you have 
there are Rails gems that are state machines, and they, they represent their state by a string column in the database. Anyone can go in there and just change that. Right. But the, you, that, the, the control, the impossible part is done in application code. Right. Because the application makes sure that as you're moving through these states, you can only go from, if you're in state A, you can only, there's only so many transitions you can do. Right. Maybe you can only go to state B. Right. Right. Nice. Um, I think you would know more about this, but like in other languages like Haskell, you probably have more ability to, to constrain things at the data level than you would in, in something like JavaScript. Yeah, I guess you would have like functions that... Well, I was thinking data types. Can't you define a data type and say, this is an array of whatever? Oh, oh yes, yeah, the type system. The type sure, system. Sure, yes. So that would give you more constraints at that lower level. Yes. And prevent a bunch of these ah, kinds of ah, bugs. Ah. So you couldn't, yes, yeah, so you could not have an array. If you defined an array of integers, you couldn't just shove a letter in there, right. a character in there. Right, yes. exactly. Yes. Right. So that's pretty cool to yeah. think about. You know, really a lot, of, a lot of it is like, yeah, tying our hands keeping our hands tied from shooting ourselves in the foot or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, whether it's data structures or other kinds of constraints. So, um, yeah, that was pretty cool. Nice. So I'm, I'm working on this, this application now. We've talked about it on the podcast before. It's, um, it's like a whole lot of forms. When I'm done with this application, I'm going to be like the leading expert on, <laughs> on building web application forms. Form-driven web form, apps. Form-driven web apps, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a whole, there's a whole, whole lot of forms and it's almost like they're like wizard like, like inputs on one in values into one input will change other inputs later down on the screen. They'll mm -hmm. change future inputs. There's, you know, everything you can imagine in a big form app. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the requirements we're still figuring out. Like as people use the app, we're like, oh, okay, it makes sense to like add new questions here, move this question down here. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've broken a lot of these forms into like their like subform components. So say you're asking a user for their bank account. There's like a, a bank account form. Say you're asking a user for their address. There's an address form. You know, other things have addresses. So you can just, you know, using component composition, you can compose like this address form in your existing form. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things we ran into last week is that we have all these subforms. Some subforms even have other subforms inside of them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you're deep down in this component tree of subforms and you change some value in one of the subforms. And that needs to like go back up the tree and change a whole nother part of like page two of this form. Hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's not, it's not stuff where it's like not obvious stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, so if the user is like resetting their bank account, we're actually asking this other question later on about checks. And that's like a completely different part of the form. And we need to pre-fill some stuff since we know they're resetting their bank account. I see. And I found that, that it's really hard to think about this stuff in like the domain model where you get all this stuff wired up. Like yeah. a lot of times we want our forms to just, you're making a bank account form. You just want to pass a bank account into it. You just want to pass a bank account. User form, it. user equals current user. Exactly. Boom. Let the user form take care of all the user management. With this though, like I'm noticing that we have to use data down actions up because we have all these, these deeply nested forms and one of them way down at the bottom is going to change some other form way over here. Interesting. Um, and I found that data down actions up, like it's really ugly, but it's really good 
for configuration. I think we've known this. I mean, we've talked about this for years. Right. I think it's really good as like a starting point when you don't, when you have a lot of configuration and you haven't really figured out how things are going to decide together yet. Yeah. I mean, you, you haven't figured out the lot. rules of the system. Like right. there's, there's new requirements coming in. There's new uses. Right. And so data down actions up. It, it, I mean, it makes, if you pass in like five pieces of data and five actions into a component, You're like there's, life. yeah, there's probably, it's, it's probably an indicator of, of missing something, maybe an object. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there are times I, I, I've been finding with this application, like that's the first go to. Like you need, I need to make something that changes form substate. Sorry, some subform state data down to actions up is the first thing I reach for. And then as these patterns start to become clear, we can come up with other objects, maybe other components to manage it. But yeah, I think it's like, I just, I just wanted to talk about it. It was an interesting thing because I think that's like the first thing you should reach for when you don't, when you don't know is like data down actions up. Right. Well, I I mean, what I was going to say is it sounds like some of these subforms have gotten generic enough or reusable enough that they don't always do the same thing. Yes. Wherever they're rendered. And that's Correct. the key. Yes. When you start an, when you start a new app and you're writing a user login form, you should just pass the user in. You app. shouldn't make everything configurable because Because you know exactly how it should yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's once you get to a point where you're making subforms that are reused in certain plate address form or whatever, then it's not always clear. It takes an address, yeah, it mutates that, but what if you need to know about other things? Yeah. So I guess I guess yeah. So like I maybe the way to jump say too far ahead but yeah i'm building an address form and now i think the address form should take an address mm-hmm. so it's address form address equals address right then later on you know changing your if your street is main street that's going to have some side effect right and right there you you go to data down actions right up. it's going to affect your shipping yeah. options and you just want the parent to have control of that yeah. for now and not throw it all into a form. Did you throw a lot into a form at one point and then pull it out? Or were you just like, I don't know, and I feel like this is better, and then it just worked out? Um, it was a point where you have this address, let's go with this address form, yeah. and someone is is changing their street name, and you need to, like, it has a whole bunch of side effects yeah. to, like, their bank account. Yeah. And it's like, how do these two forms that are on two different pages communicate with you just each didn't other. feel comfortable putting the logic in the address form like you no you no no way I mean, no way not. i don't want a a on street name change right. like if like the user <laughs> has a bank account yeah then yep. do this no i wanted to say okay now we're going to pass in an on street name change right. action so it's ugly i mean it's ugly you open these templates and where these cases are it's like why is this right why is this here Right. And I think, I think some patterns will shake out. I think yep. we'll, we'll realize maybe in a month or two how the street name relates to a bank account. Right. And there'll be some generalizable case. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we want to end this episode of the podcast just answering some questions. You know, we, we get questions in lots of different channels sometimes. And we have these video series that we make that are like you know, important to make a certain way, they serve a certain purpose, and then we can email folks responses to their questions, but we wanted to try to figure out ways to answer them in a way that a lot of people could benefit. We thought, why not just do a Q&A, Q&A at the end of the podcast? So we're going to start trying this out, see what folks think. This is our version of like mailbag. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And if you do have questions, if you're listening um, or watching um, and you have any sorts of questions on anything we talk about or anything Ember related, 
just um, shoot us an email, hit us up on Slack, a tweet, and um, yeah, we'll start doing this. So these were some questions about basically data modeling stuff around Mirage, but I think it's more general. And um, so one of them was, when would you use reflexive relationships, explicit inverses, and polymorphism? Um, polymorphism was, is interesting because we talked about that at the Mirage training. Yeah, we talked. I mean, we just covered. We just a good, talked. Great example of when yep. you would use polymorphism. Yep, exactly. So we talked about that when we asked who's used it. We only had a, a few hands raised, which I was a little surprised by, just because I agree most most relationships shouldn't be polymorphic in an app, but those five to ten percent of times you need it. I mean, you basically I, need it. I think every every app I've worked on has has a polymorphic relationship somewhere. Right. Um, as soon as you get into like the imageable, the document, the... Um, Firehoseable from DHH. Firehoseable, yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in what that one does. Um, it probably spits data out somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, what's another one? Commentable yeah. always pops up. Well, we did now the, the new homepage, we have Bookshelfable. Bookshelfable, So yeah. you can bookshelf a series, you can bookshelf um, a list of clips. Um, Whenever, whenever I think of, of polymorphic relationships, I think of you have a list of things and they're different types. Yeah. So I, that's one. And then the other is um, like the commentable. Right. You can, this thing can apply to multiple different models. This thing can apply to different models in your, your domain. Right. And just to recap really quick, the idea there is you have a post and you add comments. So you start with post has many comments. And then later on you add a video and you're like a video wants the comments too. So you could do like a post has many post comments and a video has many video comments so that those things point back to only one piece, but that's where the polymorphic association, having the comment point to a generalized commentable really helps. Yeah. So reflexive relationships are interesting. It sounds like uh, a stomach disease. <laughs> I think you should go to your doctor. <laughs> reflexive, <laughs> reflex, reflex. Um, When's the last time you used a reflexive relationship? So a reflexive relationship is like a user has like many friends that are also users? Yeah, I think so, right? Okay, yep. so um, I, th I think the last time was a few months ago we were working on an app where users could manage other users' accounts. And, and the, you know, the relationship names, we had to like, we knew one side was like user's assistance, mm -hmm. but we didn't know what the other side, we didn't have a word for the other side. Right. Like assistant T, assistant tour, or whatever. Yeah, it's like your your boss, but it's not really their boss. So we were trying to figure out what the other side was. So I think we did like user managed users and user managers, right. something like that. But that that was the last time. That was time. reflexive. Yeah. The one I remember before that was um, back at TED making like a file system, and we had nodes, and mm -hmm. a node had many nodes. It was basically recreating the file system in in a browser. So. Um, there was only one model, it was Node, but it could have a graph pointing to itself. Yeah, graph. So, graph is a great example. Graph is a great example when you use it. Yeah, reflexive actually turns out, it's kind of mind-bendy, but it turns out to be, in my opinion, simpler than a lot of the other cases because it's, you can think of it as if it's another relationship, I guess, because it's the, the way the keys work on the database level or in the Ember data models, it's the same idea. You have a key for the parent and you have a key for the mm -hmm. children. The part where it's confusing is where, where well, graph traversal, I guess, can, can get tough. Also, like you write computer properties or you're writing things on the model and you're writing it from the perspective of the parent or from the perspective of the children. But it exists on both, both instances of the model. Exactly. Yeah. 
So this thing can basically kind of be two things at once. Usually when you have a reflexive inf- a relationship, I can potentially be a parent or a child simultaneously. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to like Rails. I think Rails, I usually have to like Google this or look at the guides just because there's a bunch of configuration for like where the keys are and what, what you right. call them. Like what is the, the option that you pass right. in for the key name? And the naming part is sometimes hard. Right. Um, but they're very useful too. Yes, yes. And then explicit inverses, um, most of the cases, the, the inverse is found pretty easily. I mean, Ember Data does a great job with that, I think. It's usually like one-to-one. So if one you, to one or one-to-many, and it can do it, because usually you don't have multiple named relationships pointing to the same model type. But when you do, that's when it's nice to give a little bit of help to the schema. So you have many, um, you know, posts, and then you have many favorite posts or something like that. And um, you want the inverse defined on those, let's say. Um, in, in, in Ember, in Mirage, in both Ember data, there's, there's a proper inverse of, inverse yeah. that you define, yep. and it takes care of it all for yep. you. And it try, they'll try to tell you if it's not, sometimes you can have an ambiguous schema. This is something I'd like to see more of, actually, would be compile time, surprise, surprise, <laughs> compile time schema validation. Because, again, making the impossible impossible, there's actually... The API that Ember Data uses to help you define your models and your domain, it needs to be pretty flexible because like, you, I mean, your data models needs to be flexible. So w- what that means is that you can define things that are impossible. So multiple inverses, for example. So if you can't make it so that the API prohibits you from doing that by design, I would want to know at compile time. Because right now there's some runtime errors where mm. I have a post and I try to get comments and it turns out there's two relate two possible relationships there. Really, I just want to look at your data files and say, you need to tell me what this is because this is incorrect. So I think that could be a cool next step for Ember Data, Mirage, or any of these systems, really. Nice. Yeah. Um, We had a question about uh, when to reference relationships and when to embed them. So I imagine that the, the questioner is asking about fetching data over network. And when would you kind of sideload things and reference them, and when would you embed them? So I would say I, my my default here is, and I'm a little like dogmatic about this, but my default here is to always reference them. Yeah. To, Why are you I, dogmatic about it? Because lessons learned, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I think the 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 use case where embedded relationships end up working out is when you don't need to edit them. You don't need to do any crud against them. Right. I think as soon as you need to do CRUD, you're going to want to pull that thing out and you're going to want its own model for it. Right. Not be embedded. And when I say embedded, I just, I mean, it's like part of the attributes right. of that model. I think if it's sideloaded, that's completely fine. Right. Um, I mean, when do people usually reach for embedded data? It's, it's, it's when, um, I think when their system makes it easy. Yeah. I think if your system makes it easy to include, you know, you have a, um, What's an example? You have a blog post, and the blog post has many comments. And if you can just do comments as an array, yeah, on the post model. I mean, if your if your backend makes it easy to do that, I think that's the first thing you're going to reach for. Right. I guess if you have data that you haven't modeled explicitly, then it's basically just a pojo. Yeah. But the problem is, if like you said, if you don't model it explicitly, you try to change it. You don't have the benefits of the identity map, which is what you really want when you start editing things, right? You want Ember data, you want your Ember client to be able to read data in from the back end into an identity map. So if you change it in one place, it gets changed everywhere. That's yeah. the, that's what you want. 
The next thought, thought I had was embedding it to send it across the wire. But to me, the answer there is the JSON API operation. So you might reach for this if you were doing a reorder and a user has many cards and you just want to save them all. And so you embed all of them in the user and save it in one go. You know, I would, I would even argue that that's by reference because they, I, I've seen this term side posting. Yeah. So it's, it's, you're posting with a, References, but you can still put. You're saying you can still include all the data, but you're you still can, referencing. Things. Yeah, it's yeah. not about having all the data in a single payload. It's right. about is that is that data an attribute of a model or yeah. is it a reference, a relationship reference? Yeah, I guess that's the real point. And like, I can't remember the last time either of us have used embedded anything. Yeah. So, so if someone was reaching for that and was having some problems with it not working somewhere, I would want to understand what they were, was, what yeah. problem they were trying to solve. I would also say the tools that we use make it hard to do that. The yeah. tools that we use nudge us towards relationships that get sideloaded. Right. So right. that's, and it's, it's great. I mean, it's great. We have models that we can work with. We get the, the full power of Ember data. The, like you said, the identity map. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, just to kind of close, I, it, this reminds me of the fact that during the Mirage training at EmberConf, we ended up talking about JSON API for like 25 minutes. Um, and I think that there's a gap there in terms of folks' confidence and feeling like they understand why d design decisions were made the way they were in JSON API, um, what the benefits of them are, um, what problems you'll run into if you use a homegrown solution. Um, basically, that theory at, at a high level that if you agree there, then both both the client and the server have the best chance they have of getting this data normalized into their respective ORMs, basically, yep. which is what you want. Like the question about how to shape our data and how to transport it, it really should be a machine driven question and not a human driven question. The goal should be to not have humans think about that part of it. But I feel like that's not, not everyone is sold on that or, or believes it as deeply as we do. You know, I've, I've been on, you know, I've been on back end teams, front end teams full stack teams and and I I feel like the front end teams are the ones that are advocating for JSON API and it's usually the back end teams that get to make the decisions mm -hmm. so I think I think as more front end developers start to move across the boundary. boundaries or it's more full stack developers I think that that's how we solve this problem but that's what I've noticed right now I've noticed that people that are advocating for these things are there, you know, the, these problems come up because of front-end problems. Right. These, the JSON API, if we weren't building rich yep. JavaScript applications, we wouldn't have JSON API. Yep, that's true. So, so JSON API exists. So the first people to find out about it, the first, the first group that, hey, this thing solves my problem, they're front-end developers. Yep. But those front-end developers the usually- The back-end folks haven't gone through the pain points. They don't yeah. understand why. And the front-end developers, then I think JSON API is a, like your job as a front-end developer is to get really good at convincing back-end yes. developers. No, but seriously, that's yes. after our conversation with the room, that's what I was thinking. I was like, there needs to be some materials here to equip them, to give them ammunition, to talk about the inevitable problems that they will encounter if they go down this road of ignoring mm -hmm. the kind of advice. And again, it's not it's not about I'm kind of that sounded kind of that came out kind of condescending. It's more about saying like, here are the problems that we will run into if we go down the path of building a rich client, because when you have multiple clients that are offline and need to be synced or whatever it is, this is the bookkeeping you have to do, and this is why the transport protocol makes sense yeah. for us to use. Well, you know, the thing that I've been when I've been talking about JSON API recently with folks is is I really like the boundary. Mm -hmm. There's just such a clean boundary between 
it's like you said, it's a, the language at the front and the back and speaking. I think that's right now, it might not be in the future, but right now I think that's a, the cleanest place where we can say, we, we can we have can two agree. contracts. Yeah. yeah. We can say, we agree. Meet in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put your, put your swords down. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's good. I, I think maybe there'll be some resources in our future of just helping again on this front. I would love to, whether it's videos, blog posts, um, I think there's a lot here that we could help out with. So, yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of it's exciting. All right. Well, um, thanks for listening this week. And uh, if you like what you heard today and want to stay up to date with our work, go to embermap.com/newsletter and um, subscribe. And that's where we send out information about what we're working on. So, uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next week. See ya.